Jesus has been teaching the importance of our faith. In Luke chapter 17, we continue that teaching on what it looks like to have genuine faith. Luke chapter 17. We have seen that people with genuine faith in Jesus Christ will recognize the great value of their resources and they will use them for the glory of God. People with genuine faith in Jesus Christ will use those resources to advance the work of God. The unrighteous manager serves for us as a good example, not in his unrighteousness, but in the fact that he had access to his manager's resources and then used them prior to his termination so that he could gain friends in his next, uh, the next part of his life, the next phase of his life. And that's a proper use of resources. The point was for us is that we shouldn't be unrighteous in that we use the resources wrongly, but we should take the resources that we have at our disposal, use them all for the sake of gaining friends in the next life. Last week we saw an example of an improper use of resources with the parable of the rich man and the poor man. The rich man had this abundance of earthly resources, but it didn't matter how much money he had on earth, it didn't change his status before God. And so, when it comes to our standing before God, it doesn't matter the amount of money. It matters how we use the resources that we do have. This man was extremely wealthy, and yet he stood before God condemned. Ended up in the next life being unable to reverse his circumstances. And that's the fact of life and death, is that we cannot change our destiny once we reach the next life. We change it now by acting in faith towards Christ. The poor man, although it looked like he had nothing on this earth, actually had great eternal riches. And so we saw that we must make a choice while we are on the earth because in the next life, our destiny will be determined based on how we responded to Christ in this life. So real faith in Christ is not selfish or self-interested, but rather focuses on what is good for the sake of God's program and God's Son. So let's continue our study of genuine faith here in Luke chapter 17 with a series of uh, teachings that Jesus gives to His disciples and others. Luke chapter 17, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. He, Jesus, said to His disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to Him through whom they come. It would be better for Him if a millstone were hung around His neck and He were thrown into the sea than that He would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, Forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat. But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourselves, and serve me 
while I eat and drink. And afterward, you may eat and drink. And drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. While he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. These several lessons that Jesus gives here in these 19 verses all have to do with faith in Christ. And I think it shows us that faith in Christ requires our greatest sensibilities. That we need to seek the well-being of others. We need to be thankful instead of thankless. But it all has to do... uh, Uh, with an expression of our faith. So let's first look at verses 1-4. through Faith in Christ looks out for the well-being of others. Faith in Christ looks out for the well-being of others. And this is seen in a few ways. We see it in verses 1 and 2 that Christians are careful about leading others into error. Or I should say about not leading them into error. Notice how it begins. Verse 17, he said to his disciples, it is inevitable or there is no doubt that people will be led away from the truth of the Gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ. There is no doubt. It is inevitable. It's going to happen. But here's the message for us. It had better not be one of us. Notice how how serious Jesus is about this in verse 2. It would be better for him, that is one who causes a stumbling block, to have a millstone hung around his neck and, th- and he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. A torturous death would be far better than facing the judgment of God because of leading someone astray. Why is it? Why is it that God is so serious about us being careful not to lead someone else astray? And the answer is, is that he's concerned about his little ones. Look at the end of the verse, verse 2. Then, then you caused one of these little ones to stumble. These little ones could be people of low age, people that we think of as children. But I think it includes all people. That God is serious about the truth of the Gospel and we must not lead people away from it or else we will stand before God at judgment. Christians must be careful about not leading others into error. And also, verses 3 and 4, we see that we need to look out for the well-being of others by liberally forgiving. Liberally liberally forgiving, verses 3 and 4. Not only do we need to be careful about sin and error and becoming a stumbling block for someone else, we also need to be forgiving to those who confess their sins to us. But before He commands us to forgive... Here at the end of verse 3, He first commands us to rebuke our brother. 
Hey, notice, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. So here's the first part of, of this commandment. And basically, if we think, take a step back, what we're looking at is we're looking out for the spiritual well-being of others. We want to be concerned about their sin. And in this case, when you see someone sin, you rebuke them. And now, I want to be clear that it's not just anyone. Okay? Notice who you're supposed to rebuke. Verse 3, if your brother sins. Talking about a spiritual brother. So what Jesus is not teaching is for us to go around rebuking everyone with unrepentant sin. You know, we don't go around to unbelievers pointing out every sin that they commit. You know, you shouldn't be living with your girlfriend or you shouldn't listen to that music. You shouldn't be using that language. You shouldn't be watching those TV shows. We have no authority to rebuke unbelievers for their unrepentant sin. Instead of focusing on all those sins, which, by the way, should be expected of unbelievers, right? Instead of focusing on all those, we should focus on their primary sin that will put them in hell, which is the sin of unbelief. The judgment of God will come on those who reject His Gospel. That's the primary reason why all people who are in hell are in hell. Because they, are, they, they have rejected the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And by the way, even if you got your neighbor to stop listening to evil music and stop swearing and stop telling off-color jokes and stop living with his girlfriend, he would be just as much a child of Satan as if he were doing those things. Right? All we've done is we've painted a casket. He's still a sepulcher, a tomb full of dead men's bones. He needs spiritual life breathed into him, which only can come through the gospel. So the point that Jesus is not making is to go around and point out everyone's unrepentant sin. It is, verse 3, your brother. Now, with your brother, that is a different issue. We have a different level of responsibility with our brother or sister in Christ. And if he sins, we ought to rebuke him. There's nothing loving about ignoring a person's unrepentant sin. There's nothing loving. Well, you know, they, they, might, they might get upset. They might explode. They might do this, that. Okay. If they are living in unrepentant sin... They need to be addressed. They need to be rebuked. They need to be challenged. And if they don't repent, then you need to bring one or two with you. And if they still don't repent, you need to take it before the church. And if they still don't repent, you need to remove them from the church. There's nothing unloving about ignoring people's unrepentant sin. That's why Jesus says, if your brother sins, be loving toward him. Look out for his spiritual well-being by pointing out his sin. What would you think? If you went to the doctor because of some physical challenge that physical challenges that you had, and he ran a battery of tests on you, but because he wanted to be loving toward you, he didn't tell you what was on your chart. Instead, he said, "You know, everything looks great, even though he knew that you had cancer and it would soon kill you." There is nothing loving about ignoring the cancer that is eating away a brother in Christ. One of the most loving things that you can do is tell them the truth about their sin because you recognize that when unrepentant 
unrepented sin is allowed to ferment, it ends up completely spoiling the whole progress of the Gospel that has been started in them. Faith in Jesus Christ, one way it's expressed is by looking out for the well-being of others, which means looking out for sin that has come to blind that person. So instead of, you know, the first part is a warning against being a stumbling block for them to sin. Instead of pushing them into sin or causing them to sin, what we need to do is guard them from sin, kind of put up guardrails so that they don't fall off the cliff spiritually. And then notice, here's the goal. This is what we want to see. We want to see restoration, the end of verse 3. And if he repents, forgive him. Faith is expressed, again, in forgiving the sins of others. If he repents, forgive him. And notice how much you forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, then forgive him. So, in other words, don't count the offenses that he's done against you if he does it once, twice, seven times, a hundred times, and he keeps coming back and repenting of it, then forgive him. You might think, well, wait a second. I mean, if he's not, if he keeps doing it, then he hasn't really repented. And there's some truth to that. There's some, uh, you know, we need to consider that to an extent. But I would say to you, think about how Christ forgives you. Right? When you come to him with a sin, that you've already committed a hundred times before, and you say, God, I'm, I want to turn from the sin. Help me. I'm confessing this to You. Forgive me. What does God do? Well, you know, I know it's going to happen again. In fact, it's going to happen tomorrow. It's going to happen next week. So I'm not going to forget, forgive you until you're really serious about it. Until you really mean it from your heart. The point is that we don't know that and... God does know that and He still forgives. We can do that, by the way. We can liberally forgive someone else. That is, generously give, forgive someone else that has sinned against us and who does it over and over again. We can do that. You know why? Because that's the way that Christ deals with us every day. We sin against Him 7,000 times and we keep coming back and He keeps forgiving and those who continually experience that forgiveness from Christ will be glad to grant forgiveness to someone who sinned against them. We forgive because we have been forgiven in a much greater way, in a way that we can't even calculate. It's, it's an innumerable debt. It's an unmeasurable debt, an immeasurable debt. We can't measure how much God has forgiven of us, and we can measure what they've done to us. So, in comparison to what we've done to God, it's very minuscule. Faith in in Christ is concerned with the well-being of others. It watches out for leading others into error, and then it keeps people from that error and offers forgiveness. Secondly, faith in Christ is concerned about the object of faith over the amount of faith. Faith in Christ is concerned about the object of faith over the amount of faith. Verses 5 and 6. This, this section here in verses 5 and 6 is often misunderstood and it's really kind of difficult to see why Luke would put it in this section. He just gets done talking about forgiving believers and then he moves into being thankful to God that we need to be thankful creatures. And somewhere in the middle he says something about 
the greatness of our faith. And so, and for, in some cases, we might think, well, these are all disconnected. But I would suggest to you that they are connected by showing us the expression of our faith. And what God is concerned about most is the object of our faith, not the amount. Because when we look at this little analogy that Jesus gives, we often think that Jesus is condemning the, the disciples here because they have no faith at all. And if they only had just a little bit more, you know the mustard seed idea? That was the smallest known seed that they had in those days. That if they just had as much as the smallest known seed, they'd be able to move mountains. They'd be able to take it and cast it into the sea, this mulberry tree. But notice their request. This will help us to understand what Jesus is trying to communicate. Verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. After Jesus finishes teaching on the great weight of responsibility that we have as Christians, that we need to guard the spiritual lives of other believers by not causing a stumbling block for them and by turning them away from sin and forgiving them, this is a great responsibility. And so the disciples, I think, kind of feel a little bit overwhelmed. And they ask Jesus, increase our faith. We need more faith. And maybe there is something to that request since Jesus on a few occasions said, you know, oh, you of little faith. And so when we think about faith, we think about it in terms of a cup. Like you can have a little bit of faith or you could have a whole cup full of faith. But I think the word little, when Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, the word little in the Greek has more the idea of defective or deficient faith. That is, it's off target. It's not so much the amount as much as you missed the center. It's not that they needed to stir up more faith as if something was in them and they just need to have more of it. It was that they needed their faith focused on the right target. Do you remember when Peter walked on the water? This is one of the occasions where Jesus said this. He walked on the water. And what was it that caused him to sink? What was he looking at? He was looking at the wind and the waves that were all around him, this huge storm that was going on, apparently thinking, how can I possibly survive in these conditions? And Jesus grabbed his hand and said, You of little faith, why do you doubt? Peter's problem was that his mind wasn't focused on Jesus and His power, but rather on the circumstances around him. And what he didn't recognize is that right in front of him, he had Jesus, the Lord of the wind and the waves. And so when he was saying, You of little faith, you missed the target you of deficient faith. It's not the right kind of faith. And I think Jesus is saying here that it's more important not so much the amount of faith, but rather the focus of our faith, the object of our faith. And I would, uh, I would paraphrase this analogy like this. Even the smallest amount of faith can accomplish the greatest things when focused on the right object, Jesus Christ. Even the smallest amount of faith can accomplish the greatest of things when focused on the right object, Jesus Christ. Do you ever wonder why we don't see God do greater works in our life? Why is it that God doesn't work greater in our church? 
Could it be that we as a congregation and, and me as a pastor have subtly shifted the wind, uh, our faith to the winds and waves of trials, to the circumstances around us and not on the supreme object of our faith that causes all the growth? Could it be that our prayers are not answered because, because we don't really believe that God hears? That we don't really believe that God cares or that God can answer? Or that God wants to answer? That we are like what James talks about in James 1, 5-7. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously or liberally and without reproach. And it will be given to him. So there's a promise. If we lack wisdom, ask God, we'll get it. But, he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind, For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. That's why I I am convinced that this has more the idea of the focus of our faith. See, when our focus, the focus of our faith is off target, we actually are having faith with doubting. And so we've actually moved away from the center. And and James says, you're not going to get anything that you ask for when you ask in a double-minded way. That is, I believe, but I don't believe. The object of our faith needs to be correct. Jesus Christ. Thirdly, faith in Christ responds with thanksgiving. Verses 7 to 19. Faith faith in Christ responds with thanksgiving. In verses 7 to 10, Jesus gives an analogy, a story, to help us to understand that thankfulness is expected. And then He's going to perform a healing in verses 11 to 19, to show that thankfulness is unnatural. The first story focuses on the fact that we tend to expect thanksgiving. The second story focuses on the, 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 the fact that we need to give thanksgiving to God. Okay, So first, thanksgiving or thankfulness is expected by us. We expect to be thanked for what we do. We really have to put our neck out for God as Christians, don't we? I mean, the cost of following Christ is very high and we cannot deny this. Right? Do you know that from experience? Have you felt the pull of sin and the world on you since you've come to Christ? Do you know the dissonant chord of great hope mixed with great suffering for Christ? Have you been ridiculed by unbelievers? Have you turned down opportunities for seeming happiness and well-being and wealth and position in order to maintain your relationship with God? Have you had to call a professing Christian's faith into question because their life didn't match the standard of the Bible? Have you taken have you been taken advantage of by by a weaker believer or by other believers because of your generosity and your quickness to forgive? Have you had to suffer in any way? Have you had to suffer some reproach for Christ? To follow Christ is a high price to pay. And so our natural inclination might be that congratulations from Jesus are in order, right? I mean, after all we've done, a simple thank you would be nice. I mean, why would you allow me to be in the circumstance that I'm in? Why would you allow me to have the life that I have a life of sacrifice and giving for you. 
But Jesus wants them to wants to really to turn the tables. Look at verses seven to ten. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat? But he, that is the master, will not say to him, the slave, Prepare something for me to eat and properly... uh, Or will he not say this? This is what he's going to say. Prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you may eat and drink too. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? The point that Jesus is making is that, you know, any of us who have people working for us should never thank that person. We should just tell them their expectations. That's not the point Jesus is making. But he's saying the normal pattern of life is that a master doesn't come and offer all these benefits for the slave. He expects him to work. Let me give you two principles that I think we can learn from this analogy that Jesus is trying to give. And then the overall point. The first principle is that masters have expectations for their servants. Masters have expectations for their servants. Hey, is this true at your workplace? Does your master, your boss have expectations for you? Second principle is this. Masters don't thank their servants. Hey, this is a little bit hard for us to hear with our American ears because we often see the people that we work for as our equals or as a person who at least has equals, right? There's someone else that's on the same plane as my boss, so, you know, he he should thank me. I think the overall point Jesus is making, though, is that serving God is our obligation. Serving God is our obligation. You see, we don't like to hear that God shouldn't thank us or that God doesn't thank us. But in the ancient Near East and in many other places in the world, there is a caste system or a system where you have a king and peasants. And I think that's more similar to the relationship that we have with God. That God is the king and we are peasants. And we should not be boasting in all the work that we did for Him and expecting gratitude in return. In fact, I can't think of one time in Scripture where God ever thanks anyone. The closest indication that I can think of is when Jesus says at the end of our lives, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Master. But God never thanks His creatures. Now, we might hear that and think, well, how ungrateful must He be? After all that we've done for Him. How ungrateful. I think God will respond, how proud of you to expect thanksgiving. Because what do you have that you did not receive? And why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Here's the point. We are eternally indebted to God. But listen to this. God is never indebted to us. That's where you come up with the difference between the relationship between you and your boss and the relationship between you 
and your God. You deserved and I deserved His just wrath. We were His enemies. God had every right to send us to hell. But instead, He didn't just remove us from that penalty, but He put us on the plane with His Son. That is, you're going to receive all the blessings that my son receives. I'm going to treat you like my son. We are eternally indebted to God, but God is never and will never be indebted to us. We expect thanksgiving, but I think we have it backwards. God is the one who should demand and expect thanksgiving from us. Verses 11 to 19 help us, helps us to see that. Here's a story. This is an actual event that took place as Jesus is on His way to Jerusalem. He passes between Samaria and Galilee, so He's kind of in the northern region of Israel. And as He enters the village, there are ten men who are leprous and they are ostracized from the community. They cannot have any contact with anyone. They have to yell when they come close so that people know. If we're wondering why we are so indebted to God and why God doesn't thank us, this story helps us to see that it's actually the other way around. We are indebted to God and we must thank Him. These ten leprous men called to Jesus in verse 13 and asked for His mercy. And notice what Jesus does in verse 14. When He saw them, He said, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And and as they were going, they were cleansed. So apparently on their way to the priest, they are healed. The priest were the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law health inspectors. If you were to go back to Leviticus 14, you'd see that they have to check to make sure that the leprosy is completely gone. They go into your house. They check your fabrics, everything. Make sure that you are, in fact, cured. And then once that took place, then you could be cleansed with the offering and be re, you, could be, you could re-enter society. You can re-engage with society. Your unclean label would be removed. And so Jesus wanted to testify about His power by saying, okay, you go to the priests and you need to get ceremonially cleansed because remember, still under the Mosaic Law at this point until until, uh, Acts chapter 2. And as they're going, they're healed. And after they're healed, nine of them get on with their life. But one of them comes back. Verse 15. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him, and he was a Samaritan. So you have these apparently nine Jewish men, and the reason I think that is because Jesus seems to highlight that this one is a foreigner. Verse 18. Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? So apparently nine Jews and one Samaritan. One who no one would expect to give thanks to Jesus. They didn't have any familial connection with Him. Yet Jesus finds that He's the only one. And He wants to highlight this to His disciples and to us as readers. And the reason I think that is because the end of verse 16, look at that last sentence in verse 16, and He was a Samaritan. That word he, that pronoun, is actually much stronger in the Greek. We might say something like this. He himself was a Samaritan. Focus on this. This is amazing. Of all the people that were healed, only one came back and he himself was a Samaritan. Of all people. 
Jesus is actually surprised by the neglect of the other men to return. Why? Because what is the thing that a person would do if if he had been healed of leprosy? He would go back and give thanks. That's the, that's the most commonsensical thing to do. See, the tables have been turned now. The disciples here are thinking, man, after all we're doing for Christ, what thanksgiving we should get. And Jesus says, no, when you come in from the field, you're going to be put to work. And at the end of the day, here's what you're going to say. You know, we're un- unworthy slaves and we've only done what we've asked. We've been asked. And Jesus says, it's not that you should expect thanksgiving. I should expect thanksgiving. Why? I'm the one who healed you. Look at verse uh, verse 19. Here's how it concludes. And He said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. I think all ten of them received the cleansing from the leprosy. Nine of them went on with their life. The Samaritan came back. And only the Samaritan was truly saved. Verse 19 reads, Your faith has made you well. That phrase, made you well, is literally saved you. That, your faith has saved you. And in other places, when Jesus uses that phrase, I think He's talking about genuine spiritual salvation, regeneration. Only the Samaritan receives it. See, we go through life And we wonder, why would God allow us to have such a life of suffering and difficulty and service? Why would God allow us to do that? And I think we've got it all wrong when we ask questions in such a condemnatory way toward God. And we shouldn't expect commendation from God for serving Him. I imagine that the judgment seat of Christ will actually be a very sobering reminder of how little we really did for God. I think it will be overall a time of great joy because we will have made it. It will be like a graduation day and that kind of thinking. That yeah, we could have done a lot better, but we made it by the grace of God. But, but that judgment seat is going to be sobering. Because all of our deeds are going to be portrayed both good and bad. And as the account of our bad deeds are piling up, we'll realize that that was all on us. God didn't compel me to do any of those sins. And yet, God was the one who took all those sins upon Him. That He took those bad deeds and nailed them to the tree with Jesus Christ our Savior. As Colossians 3 says. And then as our good deeds are recounted at the judgment seat of Christ, we think through them, all of them, every single one of them that's done as obedience to God and in the right attitude toward God. We, We have all these acts of righteousness that we've done. And they're put out there for all to see. And you know what we're going to have to do at that time? We're going to have to acknowledge that none of that was sourced in us. That they were all sourced in God's Spirit working in us. And so at the judgment seat, we will stand fully exposed. And we'll have to say with the songwriter, 
Nothing in my hands I bring. Nothing. All of my best deeds were accomplished by God's Spirit. Simply to your cross I cling. Naked here before your face, helpless I cry out for grace. Oh God, the only reason that I'm standing here today at the judgment seat of Christ and the only reason I will receive eternal salvation is because of You. We should not expect commendation from God for serving Him. Look at verse 10 again. So you too, here's the principle applied, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. You see, the great sin is not that God gives you the life that He gives you, that's a life of suffering and difficulty and service and obedience. That's not the great sin. The great sin is that we don't recognize that that life is a good life. It's the best life, both now and eternally. One of the great sins of all is ungratefulness to God. Our whole lives ought to be lived as a grand thanksgiving to God. Notice the heart of the wicked in Romans 1.21. Listen to this. For although they knew God, this is talking about reprobate people, people who are the the worst kinds of sinners. Although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor what? They nor gave thanks. They didn't give thanks to God. They thought everything that they had was because of their own goodness. One of the great sins is thanklessness, ungratefulness. Listen to Paul's warning to Pastor Timothy. He says, in the last days there will be terrible times. Listen to the list of these sins. People will be lovers of themselves. Oh, terrible. Lovers of money. Oh, those people. Boastful. Proud. Oh, just can't get much worse. Abusive. Disobedient to their parents. And ungrateful. That's what kind of wicked people are out there. Ungrateful. We of all people should be regularly and profoundly thankful to God for His character, His mercy, His revelation of Himself to us and for the sacrifice of His Son and the reconciliation that we can have through Him. But it's all too easy to be like the Pharisees and the nine Jewish lepers and get all the things that we want to God or from God, get all the things that we want out of Him and then fail to recognize the source of all of our gifts and fail to recognize that our greatest cleansing comes through Jesus Christ and keep on walking, just go on through life and forget about Him. So I think in our immaturity, we ask the question, God, why would You allow me to have such a life as this? Why? But as we grow in maturity, and I think as we come to the next life, we're going to ask the exact same question, but in a different tone, aren't we? God, why would You allow me to have such a life like this? Why me? Of all people, God. I didn't deserve it. As we come to know God's grace, our hearts ring true with the third line of that song we just sang. Now, Lord, I would be Yours alone and live so all might see the strength 
to follow your commands could never come from me. At the end of our lives, all we will say is, God, we are unworthy slaves. And we only did what we ought to have done. Now we come to you with a thanksgiving that should have been yours for our whole life. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for being like many of the wicked who are ungrateful, who don't see the great value of the gifts that You have given to them and take credit for all the goodness that they have and all of the righteous acts and all the great wealth and resources that they have. They look back on all of the things that they have done, accomplishments, and think that it's all because of them but we know that they are off base and they are they don't have their faith fixed on Jesus Christ but lord we of all people who have experienced the cleansing like the lepers ought to be grateful and yet we often are like those ungrateful men who were cleansed we just go right on with life and forget all about the the accomplishments that you have done Lord, we don't deserve any praise from You, but You deserve all of our praise. Thank You for loving us. Thank You for sending Christ to pay for the sacrifice of our sins. Thank You for His coming to the earth and His giving of Himself and even serving the people on this earth. Help us to follow His example and to be grateful servants. We pray for Your help in Jesus' name. Amen.